Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So Christmas is a time of singing. It's a time when everyone gets excited. My family, uh, they, they love Christmas, obviously. My parents own a Christmas tree farm, so that gives a good indication of where we're at on that spectrum. Um, my immediate family, too. Uh, what's been surprising to me this year is that my youngest, Harrison, he's five years old now, and he just adores Christmas. Um, he has been walking around recently, so he just, he's totally into it now. I think earlier he was too young to really get it, but this year it's just like his thing. And so he's walking around our house and he's either humming Christmas carols or he's singing them, uh, and he's just loving every moment of it. But really, Christmas is a time where we all sing. We all sing in, in uh, different, different ways and, and in different spaces, but it is a holiday where we create some intentional space to lift up our voices. And there's a reason for that. Um, Christianity in general is a singing religion, but Christmas specifically is a time of rejoicing. In fact, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, there are four different songs. So the Christmas narrative is being told, uh, the message of Christmas is being unfolded, and four different times in two chapters, somebody having heard the news of what Christmas is really about, they just break out into a song. So you've got Mary and Zechariah, you've got a host of angels, and then you've got Simeon, but you have these four different songs that kind of punctuate the Christmas narrative. And so we as a church, starting today and over the next few times that we gather, including Christmas Eve, we're going to look at these songs, and we're going to allow for the lyrics of the songs to really help us think through, why is it that we sing so much this time of year? So Luke chapter 1, um, verses 36 to 46 today uh, we'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. This is the song of Mary. Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth after having been visited by an angel and being told that she was going to bear the child who is the Savior, and she visits with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth recognizes the significance of this event and says, you truly are blessed. And Mary said this. This is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would incline our hearts to worship you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to apprehend the significance of what Christmas really means and that you would help us to become a worshiping people, that you would um, fill our hearts and our voices with praise. And so we pray that you would use this time, please, right now to make the good news of the gospel known in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, here in, in the story, we find Mary worshiping, and I'm going to show you these two different elements with which she is worshiping. First off, she's worshiping God for who he is, his character, and, and just in general, who he is. And so she responds to him in verses 46 to 50 with, an, with a um, recognition of his character. And then secondly, she worships, worships him for what he's doing, for his activity in the world. And so let's look at those one at a time. We worship God for who he is. We, first off, we, we just worship. I mean, that's one of the things that we have to come to grips with. We, we worship God in this season. Now, worship comes from uh, an old English word that was worth-ship, which means to ascribe value, to recognize the significance of something, and to make that known. And that's what we do. We are worshipers. We are a people who are constantly worshiping, as Harold Best put it. That's how God made us. We're unceasing worshipers. We're always worshiping. But here what we're finding in our text today is that we need to be people who are worshiping God on account of who he is. Let's look at it briefly. This is a thing that kind of starts from the interior and works its way out. So in verse 46, Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. So when we worship, what we're doing is we're, something's going on on the inside and we're recognizing that we're responding to the God who is. We are worshiping from the interior out. My soul glorifies God. And that glorification expresses itself in rejoicing. Verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The Christmas season is a time where we reflect on the significance of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be our Savior. And if we rightly understand that message and what it means for us, an appropriate response for anyone who's a true believer, anyone who's really understanding what God has done there, an appropriate response is worship. And so this season, as we go through traditions and experiences together and worship services, I hope that you feel that you are beginning to have this song rise up in you that you have this soul response to the God who is. You glorify him and you rejoice in God, your Savior. Now, you might say, okay, Cor, I understand that's how it should be, but that's not often how I feel. And I hope that what we're doing here today and in future gatherings together, uh, I hope that it'll be helpful. I hope that you'll begin to sense this song that God is stirring in you. But if you understand the message of Christmas one of the appropriate responses is to worship God. And we worship God for his character. Let's look at verse 49. She says, For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Um, verse 50 goes on to say, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. She's describing God, and she's using three different categories for him. And they're each very significant. First off, he's mighty meaning he's powerful. He's got strength and ability. He's the mighty one, which means his, you know, he, he, he just, you can describe him as the one who can accomplish something. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's also holy. Holy is his name. And then it tells us in verse 50 that he's merciful. Now, what I love about Christmas and about God in general and the gospel is that those different aspects of who God is all come together in a beautiful symmetry. So if you only have one of them, it isn't as helpful. But if you have all three working together, it's really beautiful. It really becomes this invitation of good news. So if you only have holiness, we'd all be in trouble. 
So God is holy, and holy means he's different, he's set apart. Um, one aspect of holiness is to describe something as being without sin, uh, that it's perfect, that it's flawless, that it's without blemish, and that's who God is. He is holy in that sense. Uh, if you recall, there are times in the Bible where, where the throne room of heaven is described and angels are flying around and they're covering themselves and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. This is the kind of God we're dealing with. But if you look at us, we're not holy. Uh, it's one of the features of humanity as we find it. We are a people who are sinful. We're not holy. We are blemished. We, we are imperfect. The theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, he put it like this. This is the London Times a long, long time ago. He said, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirical, empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Um, G.K. Chesterton said essentially the same thing. Here's what they were getting at. There is something about the doctrine of sin that we can just see, right? There are concepts in Christianity that are theoretically theoretical, and we go, well, I think that this is how it works. I think this is what's going on. I think this is what the Bible means. But when it comes to the doctrine of sin, Niebuhr and Chesterton and others say, if you want to know whether or not sin is a problem, here's all you have to do. Open your eyes. Like, look at the world, and if you sit back and you go, huh, something's not right here. What is it? The, the answer is very obvious. There's this sinfulness. There's this feature of being unholy. And that's a problem for everybody. That's why the world is broken and hurting. It's on account of sin. First um, Kings puts it like this. First Kings uh, chapter 8, verse 46. It says, very plainly, there is no one who does not sin. Sin is a human problem. We have this tendency in us, this bent toward uh, rejecting God and thinking, we don't want you. I know you made us, we have obligations to you, but we would prefer for you, you know, not to be a reality in our lives. I want to be a God. I'll make my own choices. I'll make my own decisions. So God is holy, which means he's without sin, and that's a problem for us because we are unholy. But then there's another aspect to God, and that's his mercy. He's merciful. He extends mercy to those who fear him. And it's this ongoing invitation from generation to generation. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, Ezekiel 18.23. He prefers that people would turn from their sin and turn toward him. He's merciful. He desires to extend mercy to people. So he has that desire and he has that holiness. But here's what's really incredible. Those come together in his might. He's able to do something about it. It's not just that he has good intentions for you and wants to be merciful. It's not just that he's holy and perfect, but it's that he's able to do something about this fundamental condition we find ourselves in. That's what the gospel is. It's God looking at humanity and saying, I have all of the best intentions for you. And this problem of sin is something that I'm going to deal with. Therefore, I'm sending my son and he'll be perfect for you and he'll pay the penalty that you deserve and he'll offer you eternal life through your faith in him. That's the good news of the gospel. And Mary here is worshiping God because she's, she's already seeing these aspects of his character. He's, a, he's mighty. He's holy. Holy is his name and he's merciful. And that combination, therefore, is the reality that presents the gospel to us. It's who God is and what he's doing for us. Secondly, we worship God for what he's doing. 
You can see this in verses 51 to 55, but you, you already get glimpses of it earlier on. Actually, in verse 48 and 49, Mary's uh, recognizing that God's character has targeted her specifically. So look at verse 48. It says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. God has uh, looked at me and thought about me. Um, earlier in chapter one, an angel visits her and says, greetings, Mary, you who are highly favored. And she's like, we talking about the same person here? Are you sure you got the right address here? God is mindful of me. Mary is somebody in her culture who's, who, who's seemingly insignificant. It's a young lady who's unmarried in an obscure location in her culture, which was dominated by males. She, she just would feel like, I have no business being included in, in, a, in a greeting that says I'm highly favored. But God has been mindful of her in her humble state. Verse 49, the mighty one has done great things for me. She personalizes this reality. God looked at me and he loves me and he's caring for me. He's taken note, he's remembered, and I'm experiencing God's favor. I'm being blessed and now everyone, you know, generations are going to take note of this and call me blessed. Now, here's the good news about who God is and what he's doing. If this is true for her, it's also true for us, that God is able to look on us and to be mindful of us. He's able to look at us, and it doesn't mean that we have to, the, the beauty of the gospel is God isn't waiting for you to get your life all put together. He sees you where you're at, and he loves you where you're at. And the beauty then is that anyone, anyone can get in on this. The good news of the gospel tells us that it's available to anyone who will trust in God for what he's done for them. Anyone can get in on this. Now, she's worshiping God because he's been mindful of her, but then she begins to, with her lyrics, she begins to explain this counterintuitive reality that the gospel presents. It's this upside-down way of dealing with the world. The world tells us that we need to elevate the great, the impressive, the attractive, the powerful, the influential. But the gospel elevates the lowly. Let's look at it in verses 51 and following. God has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. So God is doing this incredible work. He's using his might, but he's, he's doing this thing that's really counterintuitive. He is scattering those who are proud, but he's elevating the lowly. Look at verse 42. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. There are people who are mighty. There are people who are political leaders in that day and age. And those are the rulers that Mary is saying, those, those people are being set aside. Meanwhile, the lowly are being elevated. He's lifting up the humble. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. So there's this element of the gospel that's counterintuitive. It's this backwards or upside down way of thinking where the world says, let's just promote the most impressive. The gospel says, let's find people wherever it is that they are and if they're humble enough to receive the good news of the gospel, we will lift them up. The good news of the gospel elevates the lowly. So we need to be people who recognize this, this um, spiritual need, this, uh, this 
acknowledgement that, man, what I most need in life is what only God can give me. I'm humble enough to recognize I'm not going to figure this thing out on my own. I'm going to look to God and to his provision for me, and I'm going to find from him everything I could ever possibly need. He, he, he offers us this way of salvation, and I have to depend upon him. See, what's happening here is a contrast between this um, way of the humble who are dependent and reliant upon God versus the way of the proud, which could be described as this self-reliance or self-importance, the elevation of oneself. And so we're, we're being told here that the gospel is for the lowly. The gospel is for anyone who would humble themselves enough to receive from God what he has done. And the gospel then is good news for the down and out. It's good news for the broken and disheartened. It's good news for us because God is able to meet us where we're at and satisfy us in him. David Garland, a a commentator, he describes how the gospel takes on this cruciform shape. The good news of the gospel here in this song, it's telling us about how God is going to even do this. The mighty divine warrior will lift his arm against his enemies in a disarming way. However, it's not through this might and strength, but through a miraculous conception, through the birth of an infant, through favor toward the weak, lowly, and powerless, and through death on a cross. What God is doing in the Christmas story is he is introducing this way that he's going to bring about salvation, and it's the the way of the, the crucifix. Jesus was going to come very humbly and he was going to live uh, in obscurity, but then he was going to go to a cross and die on our behalf. Now, um, as I was looking at it this week, I was surprised by uh, an aspect that's here in the song. I, I, I hadn't seen this before, but commentators kept pointing it out. And, and um, one of the things that they, that they talked about was that this song for centuries has been sung by the church and specifically by people who are oppressed. That people will look at the song of Mary and they actually take the lyrics and they, they use them to kind of build hope because they recognize that God is doing something that, that's going to overrule the oppression that they're experiencing. You see, um, Mary was living during a time when the people of God were oppressed. Uh, we sing songs like this at Christmas time when we sing about, O come, O come, Emmanuel, What's the next line that we sing? Ransom captive Israel. Israel is in a condition where they're oppressed. They're, they're living under Ro- Roman rulership. And this is a season when we kind of look forward to God's breaking in, and he's going to do something that's going to overrule that. He's going to ransom his people. He's going to set them free. Um, we sing other songs like this where we say, In his name, all oppression shall cease. There's something about what God is doing, the inbreaking of God's work at Christmas time and what that means for us, where we say, in his name, all the oppression will cease. The discrepancy between the haves and the have-nots, the, the, at Christmas we say, what Jesus has come to do will bring about equality. Oppression will cease. The mistreatment of some, the preference of some, that's going to go away because in his name, justice is going to roll down. He's going to set all things right. He's going to make things as they ought to be. 
And, and so when we look at the lyrics of this song, one of the things that we acknowledge is that at Christmas time, God is doing a significant work where he is bringing about the beauty of his kingdom. And he is going to do something that is so profound that oppression will cease. Michael Wilcock, he, when he was looking at this concept, he said, you know, usually people like us, we spiritualize the text because we're comfortable. Uh, things are going pretty well for us, so we read the song of Mary and we don't even see it. And we just want to spiritualize the, the concepts away. But the truth is, what God has done at Christmas time is so magnificent that throughout the course of church history, people have been using that song to say, though we are currently in a situation that's unfavorable, God has come and he is doing something that will set things right. And so we worship God for that. Um, this year, uh, maybe one of the hidden blessings of COVID-19 and political unrest and societal unrest is that for the first time, maybe some of the Christmas songs will have a new meaning for us. They'll have a, a new significance for us when things aren't going the way that we had hoped. When things are broken or we've experienced significant loss or the loss of loved ones, we might look at Christmas songs in a new way this year because the lyrics will make sense for us. There's a brokenness in this world that God has come to solve. And when he does that, it will be magnificent. Well, another aspect of what God is doing is a, is a historical reality that he has made a promise and that promise is coming true. Look at verses 54 and 55. It says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. It's basically saying that what is coming true in this moment for Mary is something that stretches all the way back to the very beginning. God has made a promise to Abraham and his offspring that through Abraham and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's the good news of the gospel, Galatians 3, 8. What God promised to Abraham of all the nations being blessed through him, now many, many years later is coming true. And Mary recognizes that. And she says, what's happening in this moment reaches all the way back to the beginning and stretches all the way forward until his return. There's a promise that God made and it's coming true. God is fulfilling this promise that he made to Abraham and his descendants and it is coming true. Now that's an important thing for us to experience as well. We worship God because we have a new perspective. Uh, we are not, you know, the most important people on the planet and this is not the most important season in all of history. We have this new perspective because we recognize that whatever it is that we're experiencing is actually a part of God's bigger story, that God is doing something in this world and we can be caught up in it. But this isn't the most prominent moment ever. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Babylon Bee. It's a website where they post articles, uh, satirical articles about current events. It's uh, pretty silly. Um, but I saw a post recently from Babylon Bee, and it's, they do these headlines that are catchy, and it said, 2020 is rated the worst year ever, provided you've never lived at any other time in history. And it had a picture on the one side, and it was a lady in her sweatpants, and you could tell that she was being lit up by the, the glow of the TV screen. And then right beside it was a silhouette of a war. 
and is saying, you know, 2020 has been rated the worst year ever, provided you've never lived at any other point in human history. See, that's what Christmas time does for us. It kind of situates us. It goes, okay, we're a part of this grand narrative that God has been working in human history. And we're just this little blip on the timeline, but God from the beginning has been promising that he's going to do something so spectacular that it's going to undo the effects of the curse. It's this promise that he made to Abraham and he elaborated on it and expanded it. And it came true in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's a future for it as well. But when you begin to worship God in this way and you recognize what he's doing in this world, it kind of, it's humbling. You know, it makes you realize, okay, God is doing something. I don't know what his timeline is exactly, but I'm just, I'm just a blip on it. And so with the time that I have, I want to magnify him. I want to glorify him. He is making his promise come true. So Mary worships because of who God is and because of what God is doing. And we too can worship in that way. We can recognize that Christmas is about the good news of the gospel, that God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. It's the invitation that Christmas offers to us, but here's how we need to respond then, just like Mary. We need to humble ourselves. We need to acknowledge our need. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We need to trust, not in our own self-ability, but in the ability of God to rescue us. And therefore, when we do that, when we cast ourselves on God, when we depend upon Him, when we trust Him for His salvation, this song will well up within us. My soul glorifies God. My spirit rejoices in, in him, my savior. So let's do that even right now. Let's bow and pray and we'll continue to worship together. Lord, we thank you for the message of Christmas. And we thank you that, that even the story in the scriptures is punctuated with singing. This is good news and it's, it's so great that, that it needs to be sung. So help us, God, um, Help us right now to even recognize the beauty of what you've done in the sending of your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would depend upon him for our salvation and experience the, the glory of what you've done. So thank you, God, for giving us a chance as a church to gather in this way and to consider who you are and what you've done. We pray in your name. Amen.